Welcome to the No Normal. New Music Edmonton presents The No Normal, a podcast series featuring the words and works of creative sonic artists from central Alberta and beyond. In a moment, NME's artistic director Ian Crutchley will introduce the subjects of this installment of The No Normal. But first, New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwiskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. For more information about NME's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. And now, here is Ian Crutchley. So welcome, Steph Patsula. Talking uh, two or three months before you're going to be here doing a show for New Music Edmonton, which is, um, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. And in the meantime, you were in Chicago doing an MFA at the Chicago Institute for the Arts? Yes, yeah, I am. <laughs> So I'm wondering if there's a point, whether it's recent or or however far back, where you kind of suddenly realized, oh, yeah, sound is a very cool medium, and I want to make use of it in my in my work, because sound hasn't always been necessarily part of your practice. I grew up the daughter of a radio producer, so both of my parents are very like deep listeners, not necessarily in like the Pauline Oliveira sense of deep listening, but actively, oh, did you hear that part of a song? Or, oh, did you hear that noise? Or, oh, listen to the lyrics of this thing. And so I think that I'm a person who is aware of sound. With performance art, there's always the kind of sounds that are produced from the body moving in space. And it was kind of this curiosity about the sounds that led me towards being more intentional uh, using those sounds within my work. And so just from a kind of love of listening, I guess it kind of just naturally seeps its way in. It comes from sounds in the environment during a performance and then um, just realizing that I could use that as, as a kind of foundation for maybe something a bit more musical or maybe looking at sound as the object because I kind of consider sound a little bit like light or shadow um, in an installation or with a performance, it's sculptural and you can kind of use it in a way that works with architecture or with bodies in space. So yeah. Can you um, talk about the first time you actually used a sound in, in your work? How you got to the moment where you felt like you were ready to do something in front of people? The first time I used sound in my work was in my undergrad. I was creating a performance where I was inside of those reflective safety blankets. If you've ever used those, they have a very particular sound <laughs> that's kind of abrasive, I'd even say, and loud. I was inside of these blankets and I was recording myself the sound. I was also taking like video recording documentation, I guess you could say. I was documenting myself inside 
of these safety blankets. And then when I went back, I realized, oh, that sound is really interesting. How can I kind of mess with that? And it wasn't necessarily, I guess, like I didn't like jump directly into, oh, this is an instrument and I can kind of improvise with these objects to make sound the way that I do now. I just took the digital file and I started to manipulate it. And I ended up working on a sound piece that I guess went alongside this video and it was called a silver aqueous. At that time, I wasn't really thinking about performing the sound. It was just kind of like the ephemera of the performance, this kind of archival sound that I was then kind of recontextualizing. Okay, right. And so where was that? That would have been in Kamloops, British Columbia. You, you were talking a little bit about your parents being in radio. Was there actually like gear around the house growing up? So you kind of, because a lot of what you do involves electronics. I'm kind of tempted to know, was there, you know, microphones and things lying around the house? Absolutely. Um, my father had a production company that my mom helped him with, and it was video production, audio and video. And so there was always a kind of love of gear. And then my mom, she's a very skilled builder, always kind of encouraging my brother and I to build things that interested us or take things apart and kind of look at those components in, in greater detail. It's just something I enjoy doing. And it's funny, again, it's almost like kind of like just organically happens that, oh, I have this interest. This is something that I've always been encouraged to do. And oh, what a surprise. It shows up in my art practice, however many years later. In terms of just your general background in the arts, you were a visual artist primarily to start with. Where did you go to school for that? And um, what kind of work were you doing before you started doing performance? I split my undergrad into two halves. I went to the University of Manitoba. Then I finished off my undergrad at Thompson River University in Kamloops. So that was where I first started with my schooling. And I had a really strong focus on painting and drawing. That's actually what I was doing, <laughs> was a lot of two-dimensional work. And I had somebody say to me at a certain point uh, at the end of my undergraduate studies, you know, Stephanie, I think that when you are working more lens-based, you know, meaning video or photography, I think that that is driving your concepts in a way that's much more successful than your painting and drawing has been. It was, it was a really um, honest insight. And I kind of just took that criticism and was like, okay, I think that you're right. At Thompson Rivers, the program kind of operates almost like a mini graduate program. So your fourth year, you have an advisor. And I had uh, an advisor by the name of Ernie Kroger, who was a photographer and his practice really dealt in walking also and documenting and um, mapping as he was walking. And that was really what made me feel like as an artist, I could kind of couple something that I really love, which is being in the outdoors and hiking with something like art making. Because at that point, I wasn't really positioning myself as a performance artist. Although I was doing it, I wasn't really thinking about it in those terms. I uh, did grad school at the University of Alberta. It was kind of a funny moment because, of course, it was a majority during the lockdown space in the pandemic. It was really a wonderful time, but I think I started to really consider my work as a performer. 
And yeah, was out of school for a couple of years, started to really daydream about what programs offered a focus on performance and sound, or at that time, it was specifically just performance. And so I went out on a limb and I reached out uh, over here at SAIC. And now here I am. (laughs) One of the things you've also said about this is that the visual arts really informs your sound-driven work in particular ways that may not be comparable or the same as, for example, somebody like me who came from a sound and music background. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think I look at myself as like a transdisciplinary artist. As a person who comes from a visual arts background, there is a a focus on concept. And so not to say that you can't have concept within music, like obviously that exists, but oftentimes I'm using sound or the performance of sound with objects to drive a, a narrative or maybe a sound then becomes an object in a constellation of other things within a space. Uh, and the sound is one kind of clue, I guess you could say, to decoding if you wanted to as a viewer what's happening in this space. And so I use sound the way that maybe a person would use paint sometimes or how a performer uses their body. And then I guess the other part of that is is the building aspect of it. I really enjoy building things. I really enjoy found object. And so there's this kind of historic foundation within the arts that gave me a lot of insights into how to take something like the idea of let's just say like a ready-made and think, okay, how can I make an object an instrument? How can that object being used as an instrument to create sound have a lot of different meanings? And so I think that maybe that educational background in the arts, in the visual arts, makes me think about things in a kind of certain way. And not to say that everybody comes at it that way, but I think that that's most specifically how how the visual arts have affected the way I make work. I really love the idea of being an amateur at something because being an amateur allows you to be freed up of the kind of foundational points that maybe can sometimes stop people who are an expert in doing something in a way that's like breaking the rules. I use movement in my practice as well, and I'm not a trained dancer, but it kind of just allows me to be in my body and be in the moment. And I think that that's why I'm drawn to improvisation as well. For me, I felt like that was an entry point through my amateurism, I guess. (laughs) Since I moved to Edmonton, I've become a very happy amateur. I still write scores for people sometimes, but working in the community here, everybody here is so open to like, just let's hey, let's put on a show (laughs) and see what happens. You know, it's changed everything in the way I think about creating pieces.
There's a phrase in your, your biography which is talking about bodies as beacons and receptors. You state that that's a creative priority for you. Could you, could you talk a little bit about what that means to you, but also um, maybe as importantly, what does that mean for an audience in a live performance situation? How would they experience that, for example? The concepts that I'm thinking about a lot of the time, the crux is intimacy. When I am saying bodies as beacons and receptors, I mean, that can be the human body. It could also structure architecture or something like that. But I guess I'm thinking a lot about resonance and how your body as a beacon can be in relationship through resonance to lots of different things and specifically to, to one another. Do you mean it like physical acoustic resonance or? Yeah, physical acoustics. Yes, yes. Definitely in a in a more physical acoustic way. And as anyone would know who's had a live performance, it's just like the bodies in the space change the way things sound, um, especially if you're using live feedback and looping. Also, there's this kind of relationship to ambient sound in space, increasing or decreasing the physical space between bodies using resonance and kind of relying on the sensorial experience of, of sound or live bodies in space. So I think it would be my hope in the best of situations that somebody who is watching a performance that I was creating would maybe be made aware of themselves in a way that it's not just that they're watching the performance or that they're inside of an installation, but that there's a kind of self-awareness happening and then like a relationship is built between whatever's happening artistically from my end and how that person is then entering in. So it could implicate you into the performance if you're open to that kind of thing, but I don't think it's necessary. I'm interested in this too, because it's only since, you know, the last few years when I started performing here with improv groups, it's a little different being aware of people for example, when I've performed in dance spaces here, uh, that there's people lying on the floor listening, um, maybe even people surrounding the performers in a way that, you know, in the concert hall, of course, is just taboo. You talked a little bit about improvisation there. You mentioned that as a part of your practice. So I'm wondering uh, a little bit if you could talk about how improvisation plays into or fits into the concepts and performances that you do. How have you or do you prepare for an improvisation um, and maybe how that changes when you've got another person to work with because some of your work is collaborative. I think that the way that I've come to understand improvisation even now compared to six months ago it's like constantly shifting and being in a city like Chicago where there's a lot of folks who are improvising sonically you know in a range of different ways I've been a part of a lot of these kinds of conversations. And so improvisation for me really came from, I think I like touched a little bit on this idea of like intimacy. And I'm interested in how people communicate with one another and how, you know, we open up or close ourselves off to things in the world. And so improvising felt like a way of kind of having a conversation. I guess maybe that's the way that I try to look at it, uh, even even in a, in a group setting, the conversation between people. And I heard something really lovely the other day, and it was like all of the kind of social rules that apply to having a good conversation apply to improvisation as well. So I think about it like if I was telling a story to somebody, 
I might be just like talking um, and then like leaving pauses for questions or, you know, taking a little bit of space to just kind of pause and reflection. And maybe that's how I like to think about my live solo improvising at this point. And also constantly listening because maybe you're not necessarily having a conversation with another person per se or artist who is creating work with you. But there is, again, the acoustics of the space, um, the bodies in the space. And when I'm working with a looping pedal, even though a fixed loop is kind of, it's easier in an improvisation to kind of get back to where you are, if that makes sense. You're not necessarily just completely in free form. I'm also like really listening to see what's happening. Um, in all of the loops that I'm adding to a composition. I don't know, I guess to tell a story, but then if I'm working with somebody else, sometimes it's just like, okay, I'm not, I'm 50% of the conversation. And that might mean dropping out completely sonically and just waiting to respond at the right moment, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, actually sometimes with groups that I've done that with, it's sort of like, okay, we're performing for an hour. Everybody plan on not playing for at least 15 minutes of that which might not be 15 minutes in a block, but there's space to change the texture, but also so you can sit back and kind of kind of find out what's going on. So if you're planning an improvisation with another person, for example, do you do a lot of planning ahead of time with that person? Or is it more just enough to kind of be around the other person? And maybe there's no preference. I think it really does depend on the person I'm improvising with. I'm a part of two different collaborative projects. And when I think of one person, they're very much like in the moment. And when I think of the other, they're very much like, let's rehearse. Let's spend some time together with our objects or with our instruments, kind of feeling it out. And I've heard it where folks really think that the perfect and the best iteration of it, a collaborative improvisation in a group is that first moment because of course nobody knows each other and you're kind of like working it out and some people really like that I prefer getting to know people so that I can kind of like play off of maybe what I would expect you know it's like kind of like contact improv in dance but if you're dancing with a group of individuals for long enough you'll kind of know where people's parameters lie and sometimes that can really inform the decisions that you might make as an artist in response to that. So I do prefer to to get to know people. But I, I mean, I'm happy to do it either way. It seems to me that, that there's a sort of a huge spectrum of what improvisation means, even outside of jazz, which is the most kind of stereotypical way people think about musical or sonic improvisation. I didn't really think about improvising. It probably comes from coming out of a non-musical background. Like I wasn't thinking about jazz right away, despite this like obvious rich history of jazz music, especially in Chicago and, and having the absolute pleasure of listening to others speak about those experiences, working with jazz musicians, being jazz musicians. So that has given me a different entry point. But I think that from my own kind of constitution as like a human in the world. I also was working a lot out of like my own desire and how I perceive having a conversation artistically, let's say. And so I definitely think that whoever the performer is, they're they're bringing a whole host of lived experience to their improvisation, you know? And I find that really beautiful. Dancers too, they have this. 
Well, yeah, improvisation in dance was a revelation to me when I moved to Edmonton. The improvisational dancers here in Edmonton are extremely welcoming to people that want to make sound. They seem to be very happy for us to experiment, make mistakes and, you know, drop things and <laughs> occasionally get in their way, I guess, sometimes. <laughs> in talking about collaboration, um, one of the projects you have is called Flexible Hours. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what Flexible Hours does and who's involved. Yeah, for sure. So that's a collaboration between myself and uh, the like um, live composer, Eric Fraser, the way that we started working together was much more like I was building installation. I was building movement scores. I had known him through a project space called The Transient that used to exist in Edmonton that was more of like a dance music, late night dance spot. And we got to talking and it used to be kind of like almost Eric did the sound. I produced the movement and the sculpture. And then as we started to work together more and more, Flexible Hours works. We do a lot of like archiving. We're both very interested in acoustic ecology and also archiving. And so I think the crux of that project, if I were to speak on both of our behalf um, or to speak on Eric's behalf, I guess, I would say is like collecting information about spaces. Eric oftentimes will archive sonically and then import a lot of these kinds of textures that we've collected uh, into a variety of samplers and is like working with those live components in that way. And then I tend to find objects or build instruments out of materials that we find in various locations that kind of rhyme with the same sounds <laughs> that we're finding and archiving through field recording. And so I will be using more instrument and object-based, uh, microphone objects, based texture, and then we're kind of riffing off of each other. And oftentimes what's driving that is a question. And I think Usually those questions have to do with sound, experience that comes with sound. And so we'll build out an installation um, and then we'll perform alongside of it. So sometimes that includes video, sometimes that includes digital photography or sculpture.
speaking about acoustic ecology, then can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Um, it's a it's a term that is around and it's been around for a while, I guess. Um, I mean, I know a little bit about it from the influence of people at Simon Fraser University and so on in the past. I feel like acoustic ecology in the academic way that one might think of it has actually a fairly strong footing in Canada. You know, there's a lot of different ways to approach practice in in field recording. I'm not so interested in in terms of like Foley or something, although I think that what I do sometimes instrumentally could be like Foley adjacent, kind of creating textures, but I'm not pairing it with image to kind of create this whole new world or something. I mean, there is this kind of academic approach to thinking about uh, acoustic ecology and, you know, specifically how it tells you about a space that you're in. And my biggest collection, I think, is sounds. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the more that I archive sounds and kind of collect why and when I, I take these samples and what that actually says about the work and kind of thinking about these things, not in as like, I need to have an access of something, but kind of narrowing down the sound. So, I mean, there are obviously like scientific acoustic ecologists who are really taking sound samples from areas to kind of understand what's happening within that space over time. And urban planners work with the acoustic ecology a lot in terms of like what's happening sonically within a city. I think that there's a lot of ways that you can approach it. But in terms of an art practice for me, it's just like another element to inform maybe a narrative. I'm trying to really be more purposeful with my collecting now, or mindful, I guess you could say. Not that like, I feel like it was a problem. But at at a certain point, you're just like collecting and collecting and you have all these files, audio files, and it's like, why? And you're getting some insight into my overthinking. Surely artists are, are hoarders, right? Oh, yeah. Visual artists, I know you go into their house and it's full of stuff that they've just got. You never know when you might use it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's a an instinct that, that one does fight off. However, at least with acoustics, you can just put it on a computer or a hard drive somewhere. In terms of acoustic uh, ecology, I mean, there's a really wonderful researcher called Dylan Robinson. It doesn't really have much to do with my work, but I did read that recent uh, book, Hungry Listening. If you're somebody who's interested in that world or thinking about it from a, an angle that's not the R. Mary Schaefer kind of perspective. It's a really beautiful offering. I, I love reading about sound, so. <laughs> it's had a, such a massive impact on the classical music world, especially of composers. Discussions of, of appropriation and um, understanding what it is you're, you're doing when you make use of something. While you were talking about it there, I was kind of also thinking, wondering if you could remember ever being somewhere where you you felt that what you could hear was had never really been impacted by the cars and radios and things that sort of are infiltrate almost every space we go to now. I had a really wonderful opportunity to go on a residency to uh, a space called Arts Iceland. And there's just something so unique about the fjords in Northern Iceland, which are notably very quiet. That kind of idea that you can hear the silence. Obviously, 
there's a lot of ambient sound. It's still an urban, you know, there's a lot of urban spaces that are going to impact that and roads and this and that. But like, it was very rare to be taking a recording and have it be interrupted by something. And so I became, and I was there with Eric for this particular residency. And we were both always having these great conversations with the local people there actually too, just saying like, yeah, isn't it so quiet here? And it really, I've never experienced anything quite like certain spaces in in Northern Iceland. People just love to talk about it. And specifically those like maybe who were in like Reykjavik and then had moved to the Northern part of the island or the country for whatever reason, and just saying like, wow, isn't it quiet here? And yeah, it's something special. And that kind of sound, that head, that kind of a weight that comes with the absence of something. Which, you know, for a lot of people in cities, the closest they've come to that in their lifetime was probably in the spring of 2020. For me, it's always the airplanes. I became extremely aware of when the world was quote unquote opening up again because of the sound of airplanes. And I think up until this point in my life, I was never like noticing that as much. <laughs> Airplane engine sounds are in so the backgrounds of so many people's recordings, I'm certain of it. I really noticed that. It's actually hard to make a recording outside of anything here that doesn't have that. So not that I would wish the early days of the pandemic to come back, but. It did give us a chance to hear things and you have to go pretty far away from everything in Canada to um, hear anything pristine, I think, because almost everything that we can get to, we have to get to it by car, I suppose, which means there's roads and so on. As soon as you're out there with recording gear, it becomes really obvious, I feel, like how much you're really kind of enveloped in. Yeah, it's for sure. For a while, I was just sitting outside on our front porch with my earphones on and just like I can hear people talking but I can't see where they are <laughs> and then and then when the cars would come up the road you know hearing them way before I can see them and stuff like that it's kind of that's a speaks to the technology I suppose to a large extent for me it was it was that relationship to listening through a zoom recorder that really made me want to start using microphones in a different way and I kind of think of myself a bit like a microphonist, like I have a lot of objects, which I'm constantly outfitting with, I guess, essentially contact mics and listening to vibrations and then sending that through X, Y, and Z to kind of manipulate it. But those early moments of listening in that way really made me feel excited about the possibilities. I'm not somebody that knows a lot about microphones and recording. But it wasn't something that gets taught in music school. When you're doing either a solo performance or doing a collaboration, talk a little bit about the balance that you find you have to make. How do things change when you decide you're going to collaborate? I guess it kind of just comes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's just finding the rhythm and the kind of space to listen and to, to really create something together. I have um, another collaborator with somebody who actually just uh, had a presentation through New Music Edmonton. That would be Aaron Tempest. Sure. Oh, yeah. And we have a project called Soft Tooth. I love working with Aaron because I feel like our work becomes 
a little bit like a new person. I think that like there's all sorts of different ways you can experience the collaboration. But when I work with them, I feel like things, decisions that I would be making on my own in my work are never the decisions that we kind of make together. And I, I, I mean, again, I don't want to speak for them, but I would imagine that they probably feel similarly, like we're kind of becoming a new unit together, making a project. Whereas I think with, uh, let's just say with flexible hours, it's a little bit of a back and forth. Or, you know, if you're thrown into a jam with folks you don't really know, it's just kind of like a meet and greet. It's like a mixer or something. So how, how did you and Aaron start working together? I met Aaron through another visual artist in Edmonton. And I had kind of seen some of the dance classes that Aaron had been hosting online through Mile Zero Dance. It was kind of a surprise, our collaboration. And I think that we've really grown through conversation too. You know, when you become friends with somebody who you're also collaborating with, you have this great opportunity to begin to understand how their their mind works as an artist as well. And I think that I can bring a lot of what I've learned about them into our artistic and creative space, into those modalities of creating a concept or or even in process. And uh, so I, I, I met Aaron just in Edmonton because Edmonton's cool like that. <laughs> I can't say enough good things about Mile Zero. It's a wonderful organization. I'm 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 looking forward to the next um, next chapter in their new space over in um, Ritchie. So cool. In terms of collaborations too, um, there's the issue of working across disciplines, which you do. Uh, you are yourself multidisciplinary as an artist, but I know I know in my own case, working for example with dancers is there's there's other things to learn. Not so much that I can dance because nobody really wants that, but you know in terms of. Um, how they come and approach conception of a piece and also to actually executing it, rehearsing it, and even even putting on the show, you know, from a production point of view. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about a little bit about some of the things you've kind of picked up from people that were from other disciplines. Reaching a little bit back towards um, Mile Zero Dance, I was given an opportunity around this time last year to curate a show an interdisciplinary performance presentation that ended up being showcased at uh, DC3 Art Gallery. And in that time leading up, I mean, I was working with actors, visual artists, dancers, sound artists, and it really gave me an insight into how people rehearse, what people find equitable in terms of the kind of like amount of time they're willing to rehearse a project that's only paid X amount of dollars. Also, I think like not to kind of bring it back to, to capitalism, but in Canada, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because with dancers, with actors, with visual artists, with musicians, what people expect to be paid or, you know, how they enter into a space, they're kind of governed by different bodies. And there's different expectations. And so what one person might think, oh, okay, great. I'm going to come in for this fee. I'm going to do this and that. Everybody has their own kind of specific relationship to that. But something that I find in the States, because of course, artist-run centers are a little bit different because of course, there's not the funding that exists in Canada, is that you'll have people who are coming from across discipline 
I'm always shocked. Everybody's just like in it, you know, it's like, okay, we're here, we're doing this thing. And I feel like I'm, I'm much more aware now of the parameters within certain disciplines. And then of course, you know, the needs of dancers for their body, you know, having a sprung floor or as somebody who's like very interested in DIY spaces, I mean, a concrete floor, whatever, but (laughs) say that to a dancer, you know, who's going to potentially put their body at risk if they're even rehearsing on on a concrete floor for a certain amount of time. So I think the more that I work in a kind of interdisciplinary way and collaboratively with others, I am learning a lot more about a kind of an administrative side of it, but also just the physical needs and Jerry, the director at Mile Zero Dance, taught me a really amazing thing. Uh, I mean, whether she knows she taught me this or not, but it was kind of like this idea that you have to come together and like eat food and and be a community and a unit. And like when you've got lots of different folks that are coming from different disciplines and uh, spaces of thinking and relationship to practice, it's good to just like check in order some pizzas, hang out, and just like casually like chat about, you know, like what's going to happen. And yeah, I think that was a really valuable lesson for me. I think that visual artists are basically taught a kind of criticism in space. So rehearsal times for a visual artist can be very like critical. Oh, this was really working. This wasn't working. How how can we do this as a group? And I think that that kind of relationship to art practice is not across all artistic practices. No, definitely not. I mean, in music, you are often paid by the hour, literally. You might have a rehearsal from two to four and then another one at 4.30 somewhere else. So there's there's those kind of weird constraints of being paid per service, which is not so much weird as, you know, a job equity kind of thing, you know, so that... Well, yeah, and I, I agree with you, though, because my experiences have been the same, that people have different approaches to how much time they will devote to things, but also the technical things about, yes, we have a concrete floor, therefore we need to rent Marley for it for the dancers to make sure that they don't get hurt. And I think you agree that's one of the great things, though, is to learn what others' needs are, but also learning to be flexible. Running a new music organization, you kind of have to make those kind of flexible boundaries, you know, so nobody feels like they're being ripped off or being shortchanged on the space they're in, things like that. Yeah, and maybe I'm being bold in in saying this, but at least in the circles of creatives that I run in, there seems to be more and more collective practices happening and collective projects happening. And I think that that's a way that artists can really support artists and communities through a kind of collective approach. But the, the approach of the collective and the needs of the collective are not the same as the needs of the individual or even maybe how somebody might presuppose an an individual artist, you know, the singular is maybe considering work or needs and, and, and other things. And so, yeah, I, I think that working collectively with folks is something that I value. I mean, I've said before and already in this podcast, I'm very interested in, in intimacy and conversation and those kinds of nuances. And I'm so appreciative to all those that I've worked with for teaching me. Like that's a kind of research, holding space in community with others, right? The moment that we're talking right now, which so it's mid-February 2023, you have spent your first season in Chicago. 
And I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about what you're up to at the Art Institute of Chicago and um, how you found the city, things that have changed maybe since you got there. SAIC is incredible. Um, I think about the students who are here taking even their undergrad and the sheer variety of classes that a person can take. Also, it's a very interdisciplinary program. So although I'm in the sound department, you know, everyone's just graduating with, a, you know, a studio degree, essentially. Obviously, you're slotted into your focused areas. But uh, yeah, I think that that flexibility, again, like kind of it allows for you to learn things from others uh, at an accelerated rate and also to kind of share skills. That's really wonderful. I mean, Chicago is also host to a number of amazing venues. And so, I mean, I'll speak to what I know as a performer. That's just been so great to have that opportunity to be in process with a project or trying out a new instrument and kind of seeing, oh, how is that in space? I just recently was curated into something called the Alastro series by this curator and also artist here in Chicago called uh, Paige Naylor. And uh, yeah, it was just like uh, at this space called Elastic Arts, which I think is more of a music venue. But Paige was really like, okay, let's get everybody in here, like more performance artists. And so the cohort that I was curated alongside Carissa and Kazaya are both artists in the performance department here at, at SAIC. And so there's a lot of a kind of fluidity between the venues and spaces outside of the institution, the academic institution, and then, you know, as well as within it. So that, that's been wonderful. Chicago overwhelmed me a little bit when I first got here. <laughs> I haven't been to Chicago. Uh, all I all I ever imagine when I think about Chicago is wind and really tall buildings and, and a river. <laughs> it's definitely part of it, uh, a big part of it. It's a beautiful city. I find people here to be very warm. It's not dissimilar in its artist community to Edmonton. There is a very DIY scene, and I can only really speak to the little parts of it that I've been privy to, which obviously are specific to kind of sound and performance and also having only been here for like seven months or whatever. But it really reminds me of Edmonton, actually, in some ways. And the city has, because it's such a community-driven scene, art scene here, if you even want to call it like an art scene, the community here, it feels cozy. It's easy to kind of like connect into the things that you connect with the people and the places you want to connect with, if that's something that you want to do, you know, so if that intention is there, it's available to you. And, you know, not all cities, large cities like that have that approachability, I don't think. I don't think so, no. I was really struck by that. And I just love how folks in Chicago love Chicago. There's always going to be somebody to tell you, like, try eating here and, you know, go to this park. And like, there's a lot of pride for the city. And I, I love that because as a, a person who's new to the city, I certainly want to take it in as best I can while I'm here. Yeah, I would I would definitely recommend coming to Chicago. It's it's a it's a very rich place. So much to do and see. Although there is one really strange thing about Chicago for me, and that's Lake Michigan, because it's so vast that it almost looks like an ocean. But you know it's not an ocean because it doesn't smell like an ocean and it doesn't behave like an ocean. But like 
if you've ever seen that movie, The Truman Show, there's that fake ocean. That's you look out and it's just like, okay, it's a lake, but there's something uncanny about it. <laughs> well, I know what you mean, but only from uh, having grown up near Lake Huron in in Ontario um, and spent a lot of time there. But I also grew up near the ocean later on, so definitely the different smells. Until you, and I think until you fly over them, or or you're on the beach looking at the horizon and you can't see it. <laughs> There's no way to really get how fast that is. You know, that kind of brings up something interesting because since we've talked about sonic ecology, do you have anything to say about the sonic ecology of your new place of residence? In Chicago, um, there's the Midwest Society for Acoustic Ecology. They host a, a number of sound walks. And so when I first moved here, I participated on a number of those sound walks and I've never lived in a place that had cicadas before. That kind of singing insect sound, if you're not used to it, it's really something else. Wow. So is that something you can hear within the city itself? Everywhere. It's so loud. Like if you open up your window at night, you're just hearing this singing insects. <laughs> so I think that like I did a lot of recordings of, of that. Of the insects. And then I, I went on a walk specifically in this um, grassland uh, area that used to be the former airport that was at the center of the city. It kind of is similar again to Edmonton in that way that it used to have a, a downtown airport, but no longer. I was uh, led by a number of, of folks who knew about insect sounds. And so we were able to listen to specific sounds and once you know what you're looking for, it's amazing. That's something that was really new for me and that I've never uh, actively sought out. And so, yeah, that was pretty cool. I mean, there's also the L train and, you know, things when you're walking around, a lot more honking. <laughs> Those sound walks, are they, they are sometimes actually right in the core of, of downtown or, or, or anywhere, really? Yeah, they host, so they'll invite different artists or scientists to to guide these walks and sometimes you're listening for electromagnetic fields uh, so you know you're in headphone and kind of listening for the emf which can be really something else when you're in a city because there's just so much uh so many uh electronic currents and things that are around you and so there's a lot to hear different frequencies and things so you know something like that or Maybe it'll be just about deep listening specifically and taking that time to kind of like recenter in, in the in the moment. It would be a cool thing to bring into New Music Edmonton. We did a little program last spring, which we actually called um, Spring Ear Cleaning. And um, we did uh, a couple of sound walks that were led by Scott Smallwood. Also, we did some improvisation with people and... Um, also, just some listening sessions where people came and played records that they like. Yeah, sound walks are, are definitely something we've, we've been involved with. But whether we could hook up with this organization, because I don't think there's anything comparable here. There's the Sound Institute at the U of A. I believe it's in Saskatoon that there was just a conference for acoustic ecology. And I know that... The Midwest Society was a part of that. And also, there were some uh, individuals that are like pretty heavily involved here with the sound department at SAIC. 
So Newbies Edmonton is going to present Sympathetic Resonance in June 2023. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the piece and maybe give an idea of what people can expect to hear, see, um, and experience. Sure. The piece itself was something that I was thinking about the instrument. I would say it came instrument first. So I visited the Craft Council when I first moved back to Edmonton in like 2018. And at the time, there's a, a local glass blower uh, local to Edmonton uh, called Leah Cadell. And she's really incredible. She has a studio called Suspended Studio. And I had seen some of her work, which essentially were these glass orbs that then had been pressed down so a, a person could stand on them, or specifically Leah's feet had been imprinted into the surface of the glass. I saw these and was just daydreaming about what they would sound like if they were filled with water. <laughs> they're glass orbs, you say, and people have stood on them while they're still malleable? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I learned the whole process because at a certain point, I just became so, I don't know if you ever just hear something or see something and you're very preoccupied with the thought of, it's the seed, you know, it's been planted. And I, I had an opportunity to basically reach out to Leah because I think something that happened for me during the pandemic was it freed up a lot of my reluctance towards just reaching out to people online. And, you know, Leah's a really established artist. And at that time, I was quite like shy about reaching out. And I think that a little bit of that went away uh, because obviously, you know, people were communicating through these online platforms in, in a way that was quite prolific. <laughs> and so I reached out and kind of said, I, I've seen this work of yours. I imagine these pieces as this kinds of instruments. I've been granted some funding and I just would really love to 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 work with you and so I started off by describing that I wanted them to be fit to my body and essentially these orbs these glass bubbles you have to create busts uh or or positives in plaster of the body parts or the objects that you want them to fit to and then the glass is blown and then pressed while malleable onto the structure that is representative of in my in this case my body and I also had Leah kind of create an opening in the glass so that I could drop microphones into the glass or also fill them. Let's just say if you were to see the show live, you're going to be presented with custom fit objects that are made of glass and filled with water. And I work with them in an improvised way, a little bit of an effect pedal and looping. And I'm just creating... Um, a kind of sonic bath, I guess, is how I would describe it. But the interesting thing, or what I find interesting about these instruments is that because they're glass objects filled with water, I'm working with the feedback of the speaker that I work with, and also with the resonant frequency of the glass. And if they get humming in a certain way, then, you know, like with sympathetic resonance, one will kind of start to play off of the other. And I'm using the acoustic of the space to also interfere with the way that the kinds of sounds that the objects produce. And I'm actually building new objects.
I wondered if you wanted to talk about any projects that are kind of new at the moment, or maybe some things you've been dreaming of doing that are kind of at various distances from where you're at right now. Yeah. Um, so I am working with a lot of circuit building. There's a book by um, a, a fellow called Nick Collins, which is hardware hacking. Nick teaches here. And so I have had the great pleasure to sit. Uh, well, I'm not sitting in on his class. I'm in one of his classes, that, as well as I'd taken the last semester to kind of follow along with his book, the second edition of the book, with another staff member here, Rob Drinkwater, who's quite uh, quite skilled and knowledgeable, uh, is to like truly say the least about him. So just learning some skills uh, in circuit building. And I've been building oscillators and... I think that my ambition uh, will be to not only just be building these microphone-based instruments, but also including oscillators in, on, around them, you know, kind of listening apparatuses that I'm making like very specific circuits for to create very kind of like bespoke sound. And that's what I'm really excited about right now. So would it be would it be accurate to say that you're basically right now working on tools and and materials that don't necessarily have a, a specific piece in mind for them? Yeah, I guess you could say that. I I would like to expand that universe of the sympathetic resonance um, objects with some slump casting of glass and and maybe building the controls for the instruments that I wear into another wearable piece. So I guess that's something that's kind of like. A, falling within a certain project. Um, and then there's another piece uh, that I've been working on with some mirrored glass that's custom and bowing that and kind of working with those objects. This is all kind of still in its infancy. And then this is my my big my big secret. So you heard it here first. <laughs> the way that I, I think about the sound that's created from the performances that I make has always been kind of this archival thing or this ephemera or this object that's left over, uh, kind of a latency to the live body. Um, and I haven't released any of that, uh, any of those compositions. And I guess because I was thinking about it differently, but I am working on an EP right now. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. Yes. So it's, that's something I'm really excited to be building and, uh, I'm trying to rope my my friend Luke Johnson in on some of the sleeve liners. So what what kind of medium are you hoping to release that in? I would love to release that an LP. It's a beautiful object. I know it's like not very environmentally friendly. So that's something I'm I'm working towards and I think a lot of the objects that I'm creating will be obviously uh used as used to create textures for those final pieces. But yeah. So you're going to be creating original pieces for that? Yes, yeah. Is that something that you envision will happen in a studio or would you be recording live performances? I think it will be in, in the studio. Primarily, uh, there's a kind of a, a, an element of, of the process of this that I, I think that like I'm not ready to like fully talk about yet. But yeah, it's definitely in the studio and um, a bit different. Uh, like the processes and the techniques that I'll be using are a bit different from the way that I would create my my live performances. So I'm excited. In a way, it kind of feels like, okay, get this one 
EP done. And then maybe it'll take some of the pressure I put on myself off of like releasing certain compositions or something. Well, that sounds great. No, I mean, you're so excited about that. I'm, I'm glad. Yes, I'm very excited about it. That brings us to the end of this edition of The No Normal. New Music Edmonton is a not-for-profit organization, generously supported by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SoCan Foundation, Alberta Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis, CJSR Radio, and the City of Edmonton. A sincere thank you to all our supporters and sponsors, along with our members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton, to the artists whose work is the reason we come together. And of course, thank you for joining us. Visit newmusicedmonton.ca for programming updates and for our streaming archive of on-demand digital works presented in this series. The No Normal Podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton. I'm Oscar Tsitbatov.